Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the campaign in British Columbia for 15 paid sick days. Yes, this is the demand now from the BC Federation of Labor. Right now, five paid sick days is the law of the land in British Columbia. The BC Federation of Labor, that's the largest union trade union organization in British Columbia, say, no, that's not good enough. People, More people are getting sick, and they're getting sick longer. So we need 15 paid sick days per year. i got Annie Dormuth standing by to talk about it. Have a listen to this here first. This is Suzanne Skidmore, the president of the BC Federation of Labor, on the on the Jill Bennett show. Have a listen. 15 days is kind of a realistic expectation that people have now, and especially as we see illnesses, you know, people recovering from illnesses taking longer and all that, all of that. We just want to make sure that workers have what they need to be able to be productive uh, in their workplace and not get their coworkers sick. Okay, so the way she describes it is it sounds like a pretty standard ask here, 15 paid sick days a year. Let's find out how employers feel about it. Annie Dormuth is my guest, Provincial Affairs Director, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and they represent small business in Canada. Annie, thanks for coming on again. Oh, thanks for having us on the show, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for doing it. Okay, 15 paid sick days. I'm, I'm feeling a little deja vu here because I think when we, we went around the mulberry bush the first time here on five paid sick days, I talked to you at that time. Now we're talking 15 paid sick days. What do you think of this? Well, definitely, you know, in your preamble there, you said, how do British Columbians feel about, you know, um, the current government and everything like that? We have a report card as well for for the BC government. And from a small business perspective, a strong majority, nearly 90% say the BC government does not understand the cost pressures that their business are facing right now. I think that this has been a cumulative effect, of course, uh, struggling to recover from the impacts of the pandemic struggling with rising interest rates, which you also mentioned. And now um, we have the BC Federation of Labor asking for for triple the amount of days, uh, where five days just came in at the beginning of the year, where our members did say that this is definitely going to be costly. It was going to be tough for them to afford. Tripling that number to 15 would definitely be devastating for businesses, um, given all of their economic challenges and financial challenges right now. Okay. She also makes the case, though, that if you look at other jurisdictions, like notably uh, the federal government, I believe it's 10 paid sick days if you're a federal employee. Correct? I will. Yeah. I mean, also the federal government has quite a large, large amount of, I would have to say, taxation powers and general coffers yeah. in order to afford a large public service like that. I mean, we're, we're talking about small businesses here, and I will note BC is actually the only jurisdiction in Canada where it is employer-paid sick days. Uh, the next, mm. I would have to say, comparable jurisdiction where there is mandated, mandated sick days is actually the province of Ontario, where that is partly funded for three days, and it was the original commitment from this government to keep it at somewhat government-funded levels like we saw in the pandemic, that quickly changed at the beginning of this year to those five days. So it's, I mean, you cannot compare, I would have to say, the pub, the federal public service 
to that of a small business that, you know, their half of our members report that their average revenue is $500,000 a, a year. I mean, tripling the cost, um, our own estimates show um, right now businesses are an estimate affording uh, paying seven, 17000 for around 10 employees, uh, making average median wage in BC right now, which is nearly $29 per hour. Tripling that to to a business on that scale would be around fifty thousand dollars per year. Whoa. That is an astronomical amount of money to ask for business owners to afford right now. Not even just a little over half of BC BC small businesses report that they are back to their pre-pandemic revenues. So uh, I, I would I would again push back. I mean, we met with uh, Minister Harry Baines actually this week. Uh, we reiterated the fact that five days was definitely very costly for business owners, and our own members say uh, 85% say that they could not even afford 10 days. I cannot imagine what that result would be if we were to triple it to 15. Did you get any assurance from him that BC won't won't increase the number of paid sick days that are available now? Um, we did not in that meeting, but uh, mm. I think that that's also coming up to, again, Cabinet Shuffle Day. Um, yeah. Whoever, if it is Minister Baines um, or if it is a new uh, Labour Minister, we'll be reiterating that ask once again. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you will. So let me ask you about the, uh, the cost on this to small business. Did I hear you right that B.C. is the only province where this is all employer paid? So those five paid sick days are paid exclusively by the employer. Is that correct? That is correct. I may be missing an Atlantic province. I think they've been looking at it or studying some type of moving to some type of employer paid or somewhat government funded paid sick days. But, you know, if we're taking from Ontario to B.C. examples of Canadian provinces, um, it would be B.C. as the outlier on the number of days and the fact it is 100 percent employer paid. Okay. what about the argument that it actually costs business more if you have employees coming to work sick. So you'd actually save money to pay, have additional paid sick days so your workers don't come into sick and make everybody else sick. Now, let me play a clip here for you from Suzanne Skidmore, president, BC Federation of Labour here. Here she is making this argument, then I'll get your thoughts on it. The cost to employers is negligible. The actual cost of people coming to sick, to work sick, is actually greater than the cost of providing sick benefits for, for the workers in the workplace. Okay, so she says the cost of paid sick days is negligible in her words, which I, I'm sure you would not agree with, but she also says, look, you're, you're gonna, it's going to cost even more if you have people coming in sick and making your whole workforce sick. Again, I, I would have to say from the perspective of business owners, their big pain point with, with this entitlement that came into effect at the beginning of the year was always cost. I mean, this came into effect when we were still dealing with pandemic-related restrictions. Economic recovery is not a reality for business owners. Um, I will say that, you know, from their perspective, um, okay, like maybe it's ineligible, but you have to keep in mind from the perspective of, of a small business uh, a small business owner, they're also bringing in employees to perhaps fill those days. Um, they all want to ensure the health and safety, of course, of their employees and creating, you know, safe work environments. What they are looking for is some cost offsetting measures. Um, one thing that the government can do to perhaps help business owners during this affordability crisis, I know maybe perhaps we've talked about this before, but WorkSafe BC, for example, is sitting on a $3.4 billion surplus. 
the government mm-hmm. themselves have a surplus right now as well. There's been some, you know, good announcements with regards to affordability for families right now. Business owners are, as well are is looking for some affordability as well from the government. Okay. Annie Dorma, thank you for your time today. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, here we go with the Bank of Canada rate. All interest rates up again. The Bank of Canada, as expected, raising its benchmark interest rate by one half of a percentage point, 4.25% is the new central bank rate as the central bank continues to hike interest rates to battle inflation. Is this the right thing to do? Who will get hurt by this? Could this actually trigger a recession in Canada, or does it stave one off? Okay, let's discuss with my guest, Mark Lee, Senior Economist, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Mark, thanks for coming on today. Hey, good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Mark, what do you think of this rate hike? Well, I think the the Bank of Canada did what most observers in the financial markets were expecting, which was to raise rates again for the seventh time this year uh, for percentage points increase in the policy rate, which is the overnight uh, interest rate since the start of March. So uh, that's a pretty huge increase in interest rates in a very short amount of time. Uh, And I think the the concerns you expressed are are totally legit. A lot of economists are are concerned that the the bank is tightening too much too fast and uh, throwing the economy into recession in 2023. Certainly at uh, an individual household level, uh, we have a lot of debt in Canada that was taken on at very low interest rates. Most of that is mortgage debt, and a, and a bunch of that is uh, on variable rates. So it's uh, it's getting hit uh, immediately. Yeah. But there are also other household loans, credit cards, line of credits. Uh, all of that gets affected by these these higher rates, and the the overall impact of that is is a lot. It's about a two percentage point of GDP headwind that we're going into 2023 with. Okay, I was wondering about the credit card interest rate there that you just mentioned, because I think everyone knows if you have a variable rate mortgage, obviously you get hurt by rising interest rates. If you've got some sort of other bank loan with an, a variable rate, yeah, you're going to get hurt. Do the credit card companies hike up their interest rates when the central bank rate goes up? I mean, they're already hosing you with huge rates. But they, does it yeah. go up even higher? Um, so far, they have not gone up. So they, they, most credit cards in Canada tend to be around like 19 to 20% as their annual yeah. rate. And then they have, you know, additional charges and stuff that they, they throw in there. Um, so far, the, the Bank of Canada rate have not translated into those overall rate increases. Um, so I don't include that in my calculation going forward. But it, it is possible that the, the companies, you know, because of all of the other uh, interest rates that they're that they're charging uh, that they could reset rates in 2023. Though there's no guarantee mm. of that. What about people who are renters? I mean, obviously, if you have a variable rate mortgage, you get hurt by this right away. But does this also hurt renters if landlords have a mortgage? If their mortgage rates are going up as a landlord, do they hike rents? Yeah, and I think that's one of the ironies of the Bank of Canada interest rate hikes is that when it comes to housing, those interest rate hikes 
make it more expensive for households. So obviously, the increase the cost of, of a mortgage if you're on a variable rate, but even if you have a fixed rate, at some point that's going to have to renew and you're going to have a bigger hit. But the, the fact that it costs a lot more to borrow money now is also meaning more uh, households are staying in the rental market and not into the, the ownership market. So that's putting upward pressure on rents. Uh, as well. So yeah, it's uh, housing and food, I think, are the, are the big areas where you have the most concern about inflation, whereas transportation is the other one, but it's come down from the highs that we saw uh, back in the summer. So it's not quite as bad, still higher than a year ago. Um, but, but those are the big three that I think households ought to be concerned about. Speaking to economist Mark Lee about the Bank of Canada interest rate hike announced this morning. Let me play a clip here for you, Mark, from Tiff Macklem here. This is the Bank of Canada governor. Now, this clip runs it's runs a little longer here, but I think it's really worth listening to because people wonder, okay, wh- why is the bank doing this? Why do they keep hiking up these interest rates if it's hurting people like we've been discussing but he said, here he is explaining why. And I think it's a good, clear explanation of why his rationale. So let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Tiff Macklem here. First, inflation is too high, and more people are getting more worried that high inflation is here to stay. We cannot let that happen. Restoring price stability, low, stable, and predictable inflation is paramount. Second, The Canadian economy is overheated. There are shortages of workers and of many goods and services. Demand needs to slow so supply can catch up and price pressures ease. And third, our goal is to get inflation back to its 2% target with a soft landing for the economy. Okay. I thought that was really interesting how he described it. Let's talk a little bit about that. When he talks about getting inflation down to 2% a year mark and then have a soft landing, what is, what, how do you interpret that? Does he mean like he's trying to avoid, avoid a recession by doing this? Well, here's the thing with the Bank of Canada. Um, they have basically determined that their mandate is uh, primarily around uh, maintaining a low inflation environment in Canada, which you know right. over the last like twenty thirty years has basically meant inflation between one and three percent. So we're at seven percent. So the Bank of Canada is like, okay, we need to get that down. The only real tool that they have to use is this overnight interest rate. So it's a very blunt tool in terms of its impact in the economy. Here's the kicker is that most of the inflation we are seeing is not from domestic sources. Like even the Bank of Canada itself admits that two thirds of the inflation is from external factors. It's oil prices um, because Russia invaded Ukraine and and, uh, oil prices spiked. It's supply chain impacts due to COVID or, you know, natural disasters. There's a bit of profiteering in there, which uh, the Bank of Canada doesn't mention, particularly oil and gas companies and, and grocery store companies. But I think the Bank of Canada's story is, for the most part, wrong. It's not workers 
um, who are, are are pushing up prices here. Um, you know, it's some of these companies that are are, are, are doing that. It's, it's not that there's too much money chasing around uh, too few goods. It's that these are external factors. So the Bank of Canada has this very simplistic model about how the economies work and a simple story about how its interventions are going to quell inflation, but they don't match with the reality on the well, ground. And the upshot is that a bunch of workers are going to get thrown under the bus due to unemployment and a lot of homeowners who have mortgages who believe the Bank of Canada when they said they would keep interest rates very low for a long time now have debt that's rolling over at much higher interest rates and that's hurting tremendously. Well, if Pierre Polyev was here right now, the federal conservative leader, he would say, oh no, Mark, you're wrong. It is too much money out in the system. It is being caused by overspending by government, that this is like, as he calls it, just inflation. It's Justin Trudeau's fault for overspending, and that's causing the inflation. You're not buying that. Um, yeah, uh, Pierre Polyev doesn't understand how monetary policy works. A year ago, he was touting Bitcoin as the <laughs> solution to Canada's inflation problems. And anyone who bought Bitcoin based on his advice would have lost about 75 or 80 percent of their money. So, um, you know, he's playing a game where he's, you know, politically trying to blame inflation on on the Liberal Party. But it's not yeah. actually how the monetary system works in Canada, unfortunately. Okay, what about, we heard Tiff Macklem, the Bank of Canada governor, say in that quote that the Canadian economy is overheated, as he said. So we talked about there's a worker shortage, there are, there are supply chain problems. And so what the government wants to, or what the central bank wants to do is slow down demand, slow down demand, so because uh, economy's overheated. Do you agree with that? That's one of the problems, that slow down demand so supply can catch up. Yeah, I mean, that, that is kind of the, the idea, right? So you raise interest rates, so you're raising the cost of borrowing money across the economy, and that slows the economy down. We see it in housing Certainly, with like business loans, um, you know, we're, if we're you know it's already starting to drop off and will go ahead. Um, but you know, when you look at workers, uh, is it because workers have made these massive wage gains? No, it's not. I mean, wage gains have been lower than inflation for a couple of years now. There are some areas where there are worker shortages and, you know, cooling down the market like in residential country construction uh, could be um, a beneficial thing. Um, but there's no reason to blame workers and there's no reason to believe that just jacking up interest rates is the best way of dealing with those supply shortages. So um, I, I think that 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 storyline is problematic. And the fact that the Bank of Canada hasn't mentioned that, you know, in a number of major industries in the economy, profits are at record, record levels. Uh, And we have seen uh, price increases at the supermarket that are higher than the cost of inputs going in. So the the supermarkets are are raking off a little bit of extra profit on this, and they're making like record profits. And somehow the Bank of Canada doesn't think that's worth noting. But the idea that there might be workers who have enough money to pay for their their basic needs is somehow the reason to throw the economy into recession. That does not make sense to me at all. All right. Uh, Talking about the central bank uh, hiking interest rates again, it's a half percentage point increase. 4.25% is the new central bank rate. Mark Lee is my guest. Lots of calls. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. 
Hey, Mike. Um, Mark, your ideological blinders are preventing you from noticing that government policies such as taxation are also contributing to disinflationary pressure. So I'm, I don't know why that prevents you from acknowledging that. And the other thing is, you're going on about Polyev and uh, crypto. Well, your friends in the Ontario Teachers Union lost a bundle of dough in crypto as well. But anyways, I'll let you respond. Mark, go ahead. Well, I'm not a teacher, so I'm not really sure how the investment decisions of the teachers board affect that. But please explain your, your theory of inflation as it relates to taxes. So you're, you're telling me that the carbon tax and government spending does not increase inflation? If government just held the line on, held the line on, on spending, you're, you're telling me that would not impact inflation? Is that what you're saying? Well, in fact, what we've seen over the last year is that the the governments are withdrawing the stimulus that we had uh, during COVID. Uh, The actual uh, fiscal position of the federal government is contractionary. It's contributing to the overall uh, situation we're facing right now. If you look at what the actual drivers of inflation are, a lot of it is transportation, um, which you can see at the pump, you know, yourself. That's feeding into food because, uh, you know, fossil fuels go into growing food and transporting food and all of that. So a little bit of price uh, profit taking by the companies in there as well. And then the housing is the other big piece of it. Those are the three main components of inflation. So I don't think your explanation actually gets to what's going on there in terms of the main causes of inflation. Thank you for the call, Dev. Let's go to Ryan on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. I like I just so disagree with your the guy that's on there now. First of all, Pierre's a finance critic. I think he understands the economy probably a lot more than most of us do, but that doesn't mean we can't. Um, blaming companies for record high profits, like causing inflation, you're lying through your teeth. The Bank of Canada admitted it's from COVID spending. If we curb the COVID spending. The only thing that causes inflation is government spending. Your, your guest is lying through his teeth and withdrawing the funding after the fact. Well, we reduced the funding from code. It doesn't undo the fact that you've already spent the money, which is the inflation we're dealing with now. Okay. Good for you. Okay, let me let yeah, Mark that, defend that, himself. Go ahead, know, Mark. Yeah, I mean, that's not what happened. I mean, during COVID, we shut down a large portion of the economy in order to maintain demand and keep businesses afloat and uh, workers working. We had extraordinary measures, both by the Bank of Canada and by governments, primarily the federal government, to uh, to pump some money uh, into the uh, economy. That is exactly uh, as it should be, the government is withdrawing that stimulus uh, right now. So I'm not really sure where that's coming from. George and Nanaimo. Hi, George. Hi, guys. I uh, fundamentally disagree with what the Bank of Canada is doing. Personally, I'd much rather let the inflation go. I can decide what I want to spend my money on. I can't decide uh, when my mortgage is renewed in November of next year. It's obviously going to go up quite dramatically that's going to affect me a heck of a lot more. And the other thing is, if we say that inflation is the result of too many dollars chasing too few goods, why isn't the solution just to produce more goods? We should be trying to ramp up the economy, overheat it, heat it up, get it going, get things moving. There's obviously demand for things after three years of nothing during COVID, everybody's backlog. Let's get things going. Okay, interesting call. Thank you, George. What do you think of that, Mark? 
you know, there's lots of goods on the on the shelves out there. I mean, you know, I know we had a bit of a, a crisis around children's cough syrup um, in recent times because of, of uh, various viruses. Um, but for the for the you know vast 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 majority, there are no supply shortages that would indicate that there's uh, too much money chasing uh, too few goods. That's not what's driving the inflation we're seeing today. And I think the caller's right is asking the question, is this cure worse than the disease? Um, you know, is all of us paying a little bit more inflation? Is that better than crashing the economy and throwing a bunch of workers out of work? Mark, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. It is a big day for the David Eby government, and at this moment, it is the big reveal here of his new cabinet. That is underway at this moment at Government House in Victoria, and I can tell you a few of the announcements that have already been made here. Mitzi Dean is reconfirmed as the Minister of Children and Family Development in B.C., a uh, little surprise. I thought she was going to move out of there after this autism bungle here. You remember the government was wanted to claw back autism funding and they flip-flopped on it. That was her file, but uh, didn't cost her her job, apparently, here. We've also got a few others that have been announced. Pam Alexis, new minister of agriculture. She's on the uh, backbencher. So that's a big promotion from the backbench. She goes from the backbench to the agriculture minister. Lisa Bear is Minister of Citizen Services, so she remains in that job. Rakna Singh is the new Minister of Education in B.C. This is a big promotion for her. And uh, she was a big supporter of David Eby. Okay, we're uh, analysis as it happens here. we got a great panel for you. Jeffrey Ferrier is a Senior Vice President, Hill & Knowlton Strategies. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jeffrey. Howdy. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Mary Polak is also on the line. Mary is a strategic advisor, Maple Leaf Strategies. She's a former liberal MLA for Langley. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mike. Thanks to both of you. Jeffrey, I know you very kindly ducked out here to talk to us because you're at the event there in Victoria. What's jumping out at you here with this uh, cabinet so far? Well, uh, David Eby's picking his team, and uh, he's he's chosen a mix of experience and uh, new uh, what comes out to me is that it, it appears to be a little bit of a bigger uh, cabinet. A lot of uh, folks, uh, long-tenured, experienced folks from John Horgan's cabinet, with the exception of a couple, and some new faces to bring in some new energy. And you've, you mentioned uh, Pam Alexis is one of them, uh, also uh, some other folks. So uh, this is the team that uh, David Eby has chosen to, to get things uh, done. He's made the promises, he's got the team, and... Now it's time to get to work. Okay, Mary Polak, as Jeffrey just mentioned, it appears to be a larger cabinet than before, so it looks like the the size of the cabinet is expanding. That's going to cost more money. What do you think of that? (laughs) Costs more money, but keeps the people in caucus happy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I counted, I'm trying to count on screen, I think I counted 27, which is up from... 21 full cabinet ministers before 24 if you include the ministers of state and they do sit around the cabinet table so you know they they count um the one that jumps out to me right just at the moment uh well they just announced katrine conroy for finance so that's certainly a big move but also um josie osborne in energy mines low carbon innovation and i was trying to cast my aging memory back and think if there has been 
a woman in charge of energy and mines, and I actually don't think there has. But, Mike, you might have a better recollection than I do. I, I, I suspect you may be right there. And Katrine Con- so Katrine Conroy is the new is the new finance minister. Is that right? If, glo- if global is to be believed, and they're pretty trustworthy. Okay. So. I believe global. I believe global. Okay, so Selena, Selena Robinson shuffled out of finance there. Jeffrey, what do you think of that? Well, Selena's, uh, I saw her on stage, so she's still in the cabinet. I think the, the uh, disagreements that uh, Premier Eby and uh, Minister Robinson have had in the past are, are pretty well documented. Uh, I think uh, Katrine Conroy's choice is very much a choice of uh, uh, a mix of talent, but also it's, it's good uh, politics. So, you, you know, Katrine's been an MLA since 2005. She represents the, the jobs wing of the NDP, former steel worker, a professional engineer who worked at the mills in Castlegar and, and Trail. So you have on the front bench as the balance to the urban uh, uh, dude, uh, David Eby, you have a, a experienced uh, a woman from rural British Columbia, and I think that's an important voice that can be missed uh, in cabinet when it's predominantly urban and uh, activist rather than, you know, rural and jobs focused. Okay, George Heyman is still the Minister of uh, Environment. There's a huge protest outside a government house from anti-fracking protesters going on at the same time. And as Heyman has just been announced here as the, he retains this Minister of Environment portfolio, you can hear the stop fracking protesters from right outside. So that was a, a bit ironic. Uh, Mary, are you surprised at all that he's, uh, he's been maintained in that portfolio? No, I'm not. I mean, that really is where George Heyman has wanted to be. It's his background, his experience with the Sierra Club. I mean, I, I, I would have been shocked uh, if he moved, I'm seeing Ravi Kalon in housing. Uh, I think that's probably um, not a surprise to anyone, really. Uh, when you think about uh, his riding, you think about uh, the crossover where he's in that Delta North. It is growing, a growing community right close to Surrey. Um, you know, so that, that makes a lot of sense, too. Uh, Mary, what do you think of Katrine Conroy as the new Minister of Finance? I guess this is somewhat surprising here. Like Selena Robinson, I guess it's not a surprise that she was shuffled out as the finance minister. As Jeffrey just mentioned, she had, she had not been closest to EB. But what do you make of Katrine Conroy in there as the finance minister? I guess my first take would be, uh, knowing, knowing Katrine, uh, that this is a, a steady hand on the tiller kind of move. Um, you know, she's known as a competent minister. Um, she's not real flashy. Uh, she's more the get down at the desk and do the work type. So I think that really does signal a kind of steady as she goes uh, move. Uh, we've just seen now Brenda Bailey, jobs minister. Uh, so she mm. moves into that portfolio that Kalon leaves behind uh, going to housing. So again, that's another uh, prominent ministry uh, for a woman to take. Um, it has been held by a woman in the past, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that's also uh, another prominent one. Mitzi Dean remains as the Minister of Children and Family Development. And Jeffrey, this portfolio has been called many times over the years as the most difficult one in, in the cabinet. And uh, maybe <laughs> you know, if you get the short straw, you get this one. There's so many problems and challenges in that portfolio, but she remains there. That is, I thought that was a little surprising to me because I thought after this 
this fight about autism funding and, and EB doing a flip-flop on the autism funding file there with a lot of pressure on government that she might have been moved out of there because she had been defending that for so long. What do you think of that? Boy, autism is a, a tough file, and I remember going back a couple decades when I worked in Ontario and, uh, you know, just years and years of uh, tough public debate with parents who were concerned about their kids and getting uh, treatment. And, I, you know, I'm... I, and it's 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 hard on families and it's and it's emotional and everyone wants the best for for kids and it's a tough job for minister. I'm I'm surprised uh, that she is still in the role, but I think yeah. it reflects a view by the premier that it's you know the minister has carriage for the issue, but it was cabinet and the government that made the decision. And uh, you know I think an about a very public about face. Um, uh, uh, to her was uh, was difficult, and I think that now the message is: Look, at, we made this decision. We're all going to wear it. You you know the file best. Get in there and fix it. And if it doesn't, then I, I think we'll look down the road and we'll see what what happens in that. Role. Mary Polak, I think it also shows as well, though, that I guess EB is willing to bend. I mean, this is a, a file, this autism funding file, that the government stuck to its guns here for a long time on. It took a lot of heat from families of autistic kids. and But once EB took over, he showed the willingness to bend and cave on it. What do you think of that? I, they had to. Uh, they absolutely yeah. had to for their political survival. Um, yeah, I'm surprised that the minister remains there, Not not because I thought, she was at personal fault for it, but because it's often the case uh, that whether it was a cabinet decision or not, when you've been in that much controversy that, you know, you get you get moved on out. But, it you know, it signals some continued faith that EB has in her. Uh, it is tough. I've been MCFD minister. It's not for the yeah. faint of heart, right. um, you know, but uh, we'll see. I, I think Jeffrey's right. Um, a lot will be riding on what happens in the coming months. And if, in fact, um, she can right the, the ship in terms of the trust of those families. What I uh, want to deliver, what I want our team to deliver over the next uh, 18 months to two years for British Columbians are real, concrete things that they can see, that they can touch, that show them the direction that we're going. The Premier David Eby there speaking about the direction of his government here over the next year and a half to two years before we get to another election. And we're getting a clearer picture of where he's going with the new cabinet that's being announced as we speak right now. Analyzing it for you with Jeffrey Ferrier and Mary Polak. Um, here is one of the announcements that Eby made just a short time ago, guys. Let's have a listen. Minister for Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills, Selena Robinson. Okay, so Selena Robinson there, Minister of Post-Secondary Education. So the former finance minister goes to post-secondary education. We have a new finance minister. That's a demotion, right, Jeffrey? I think any opportunity to serve in cabinet is a good one, Mike. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I know folks in the sector, and they were looking for a strong and active uh, a, a minister. Uh, they're, you know, concerns about uh, labor markets and uh, you know where you get the next generation of workers and making sure BC's all set up to to uh, uh, you know have the workers that needs to be to thrive in a in, in a. Uh, uh, 
a green and global economy. And they'll be excited to have someone who knows the insides of government uh, as well, uh, and has led as well, and who has as big a heart and uh, a co- as, as, is as competent as Selena Robinson. Okay, Mary Polak, your thoughts? Yeah, it's a demotion. Uh, I, you know, not that, uh, uh, not that one would want to diminish the importance of being in cabinet. Of course, it's important, but there's no question that that's not a lateral move. Uh, going from finance to post-secondary. Um, and I, it's no secret there's been some difficulties behind the scenes. Uh, noticing now, though, this is a big one, Nikki Sharma and his AG. Uh, that's a oh, big Oh, wow. Yeah. He was. Okay. Like, I thought you, yeah, Nikki Sharma. I've been thinking that that was going to happen. I think that, uh, you, uh, Mary, you were talking earlier about when you have a challenge, you want a fresh face in there, whether the person's yeah. personally responsible or not. And I think Murray Rankin is a smart, capable person, and the public safety issue had escaped him as a minister. And Nikki Sharma is a tough uh, lawyer from East Vancouver, and she'll be an interesting choice in that uh, in that role. Yeah, yeah, I think she will. That'll be very interesting. Did did either of you, because they didn't put it up in the ticker, and I muted, see what Dan Coulter uh, was given? I haven't I'm seen that yet, out, Jeffrey. I'm in a gazebo outside government house, so I don't. I haven't seen that. that. <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet, guys. So I'm not sure. He certainly was on the stage, but I'm not sure what portfolio he has been given. Nikki Sharma. She's been a frequent guest here on the show in the past, and I think she's certainly done a, a good job as the uh, MLA there. Certainly, she's a partisan MLA. She's she's been an MLA that the NDP have put up when they need someone to kind of attack and go after the liberals mary but boy oh boy attorney general i didn't see that one coming that's a that's a big promotion it is a big big step but uh, yeah. uh you know certainly i i think it i think most people would agree uh that something had to change there and something dramatic had to change there because uh you know certainly uh murray rankin for all his uh history and abilities uh this really has escaped him this position yeah, I mean, the whole issue of, of prolific crime, repeat offenders, public safety, obviously that's a big pressure point for this government. Jeffrey Ferrier, like, where do you see the EB government going on those files with this new cabinet lineup? Well, uh, I haven't seen what he's going to do in Solicitor General yet, but I think yeah. uh, his it, putting... It's uh, Worth still. Well, that's, well, that, that makes good sense uh, to me. Mike is a uh breaks the mold when it comes to the ndp uh sometimes folks will say that we're um a little bit too focused on social issues mike's one of those folks who's very focused on you know on on crimes certainly about putting the bad guys behind bars uh and it's pretty clear about that i think uh, nikki uh, miss sharma and uh, minister sharma i should say in that uh new role says to me that it's someone who eb trusts will put into action the plans that he's put in place around uh, public safety. He set some clear markers about what he wants to do. He wants it to be tougher and more comprehensive, both on the on the crime and on okay. the intervention uh, uh, files. I mean, you know, Sharma's the person who's going to do it for him. Just have 30 seconds left here. Dan Coulter is the new Minister of State for Infrastructure and Transit. Mary, if you have any thoughts on that. There we go. I think that's uh, that's an inspired choice to have somebody... Uh, with a disability who is going to have an influence over transit policy with all that we're hearing about accessibility. Yeah. Uh, that's something that still really needs to be tackled. My mom was a paraplegic, so it's close to my heart. 
Guys, thank you for your instant analysis here of the, of the cabinet lineup. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.